Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. So today we're talking to Elena Green, who is an undergraduate student at Michigan State University, majoring in zoology. Her research focuses on the nexus between conservation, criminology, and women's studies. I really admire what Elena has been able to accomplish because reflecting on my own undergraduate experience, I took a more linear path, which involved me taking the courses I needed, doing a bunch of internships, getting a good GPA, and then going off to grad school soon after. Whereas Elena has taken a savvier and a more thoughtful approach where she's really questioned if the work she has been involved in brings her joy and is meaningful. As a result, she has experimented with various research opportunities and has done so without second-guessing herself, which has led her to her current research on the gender dimensions of wild meat trafficking in the Democratic Republic of Congo. She's developing her skills in data management while taking an intersectional approach, which is reflected in her in-depth analysis on the impact of gender roles, particularly of women in the wild meat trade. She shares some of her very interesting findings with us in this conversation. She also talks about her plans to attend graduate school and focus on wildlife conservation, community sustainability, and women's empowerment. So, y'all, if you want to know how to maximize your undergraduate experience or any professional experience for that matter, listen to Elena's advice because she's figuring out a lot of other stuff, but she's also figured out a bunch more. So, listen to her. So thank you so much again, Elena, for spending time with us on Breaking Green Ceilings. Really appreciate it. So we're here today to talk to you about your journey in pursuing a degree in zoology and in particular, your research interest in the gender dimensions of urban bushmeat trafficking, which should be a very interesting conversation. And I'd like us to start from somewhat the beginning, and that is, if you could tell us, how did you develop your passion for the natural environment? Yeah, so I'm originally from Michigan. I've grown up in Michigan and I spent most of my childhood going to the Detroit Zoo. Like my family had a membership and that's where I'd spend like all my summers would just be going to the zoo with my grandparents. And I used to keep like this dinky little composition notebook and I would just fill it with animal facts. So (laughs) it's always just been like a huge passion for me with wildlife and with my own pets at home. So it's just kind of been a part of me for as long as I can remember, really. Yeah. Is there a specific or specific exhibits that you enjoyed? I love anteaters. I really love animals with weird noses. I have no explanation <laughs> why, but <laughs> yeah. <that's... laughs> I was just thinking of all the animals with weird noses now. It's like yeah. elephant. Yeah, elephants, artworks. I think sloths have weird noses. Yeah. Salamanders. <laughs> Yes, there's a just like smushed there to their faces, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. Really funny, interesting <laughs> fact. So, and I guess that's how you decided that you wanted to pursue a degree in zoology then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, just having that, I, everyone from like my high school or like from my town, you went to Michigan State or you went somewhere else in Michigan. And I knew Michigan State had a really great zoology program. So, I ended up going there and I really enjoyed it. And so how did you, moving from high school system to a college system can be quite daunting. I know it was for me as a foreign student. How was that experience for you transitioning? So I initially didn't go to MSU for my freshman year because I was kind of a wanderer and I wanted to try different, like go to a different state and try something new. So I spent my freshman year in Vermont at a small college called Green Mountain College. And I went there for a year and was studying animal conservation and care there. So from my high school where I had 2,000 people, I went to a school that had 400 people. And then when I transferred to state, they had 50,000. So (laughs) yeah, it was very... Extremes. Yeah, very huge extremes. I think it was a little difficult just trying to find like my people in my community, but being able to figure that out kind of quickly, I think was really helpful for me and being able to make that transition. Right. And what do you mean by your people? 
So finding people who like share the same interests as me or had like the same goals within their life and like what they wanted to do was really impactful. So right. the summer before I transferred to Michigan State, I did a wildlife rehabilitation internship and I mm-hmm. met some of my very close friends that I'm still friends with today. And that was about two years ago that I met them and we're still really, really close because of that. Yeah, that's a really great way to transition now into a bigger community, I guess. And I was really intimidated when I was looking for colleges and universities. I ended up going to a small liberal arts college and I think we were maybe like 300 to 400 students and it felt very comfortable because I guess you know everyone, but sometimes that can feel uncomfortable too because everyone knows you, (laughs) (laughs) especially for an introvert. So, and then just thinking about how massive MSU is and other similar institutions, it may feel like you're just a cow. (laughs) <laughs> like a cattle station well, maybe yeah. that's a bad analogy because no. those are, <laughs> yeah because there's like uh, implications of getting slaughtered and death and whatnot but yeah, what I mean is, yeah, <laughs> it just feels like uh, yeah really overwhelming so then how does it work in terms of determining what courses you should be taking in order to fulfill the requirements for the degree and do you have like somebody who guides you through that So I was really lucky when I transferred because I was the first student from my previous college to transfer to Michigan State. And MSU honestly didn't really know what to do. So they just kind of accepted all my credits. And then if I said something qualified, they just accepted it, which was really nice. Yeah, it was really (laughs) nice. And my degree is pretty flexible because within zoology, you take like the basic science classes. And then at state, you have a concentration. And my concentration is very, very flexible. There's not that many courses. So it's helped me a lot with my research is where I'll find like a gap in my knowledge or something. And I'm able to take classes that still count towards Mm -hmm. my degree in some capacity. Wow, that sounds really good. Yeah, because we had specific courses that we needed to take in order to fulfill. And of course, there were electives as well. Yeah. And so what courses have you found to be most helpful so far in your research? So I've taken a economics course, which was really helpful in me understanding economics because coming from a zoology background, there's really nothing that talks about like ecosystem services and then economics associated with that. So being able to understand that from a non-natural science perspective was really helpful. I've also taken a bunch of policy classes. A lot of wildlife crime related activities have to do with policy as well. So being able to understand like not only natural resource policy and conservation policy, but also like social justice policy is really helpful. And this upcoming year, I'm taking a women in criminal justice class and also a women in developing countries class which I think will be really helpful. Yeah, because then since you're looking at the gender dynamics, it might help you to better understand the gender roles from a cultural perspective. So how have you figured out what kind of courses to take? I read a lot. And oftentimes when I'm either working on a manuscript or am just kind of browsing for more information, I find that there's certain areas that I'm still lacking knowledge in. Mm-hmm. And I'll try and read books on that subject. But if I find that I'm still lacking, I'll go and see if there's a course that could try and fill that mm-hmm. gap for me. Okay. And so within MSU, do you have, well, at least in my college, we had mentors assigned to us. Is that something that you have access to? Yeah. So I have my advisor. I used to bother her a lot when I was trying to figure out everything. I was initially on a pre-vet track, so I was focused on getting those requirements out of the way. But Mm. when I started shifting my focus to more like a PhD route, I had to talk to her about how I can take the courses that I need, but also have room to take the courses that I want to take that I need outside of my degree. Mm -hmm. So I have everything kind of in place. I also have a bunch of spreadsheets where I keep track of all the courses and the course requirements that I need, which is really helpful for me. Spreadsheets are helpful. I love (laughs) spreadsheets. I love a good spreadsheet. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I could nerd out on spreadsheets all day. (laughs) Totally share your feelings on that. So that's really interesting that you seem like you're 
more independence now in trying to figure out what you need, what you don't. So you mentioned earlier that you were in a pre-vet track and I'm guessing that was your earlier exploration phase. And so now you've transitioned into bushmeat trafficking. How did that come about making that, I guess, shift? Yeah, so I actually kind of made that shift pretty, I'm not sure if it was late, but I was starting my sophomore year of undergrad and I was trying to get research experience because it would look good on a vet school application. And that was my main prerogative with almost everything that I did was that it would look good on this application or it would help me get to vet school and not really looking for something that would make me happy or something that I would enjoy because I was just focused on the end goal with everything. But I saw an ad from my current lab. I work under Dr. Meredith Gore. She put out an ad looking for someone who was fluent in French and knew ArcGIS. And I unfortunately didn't know either, but I applied anyway because her ad was just very amazing in talking about how she was combining criminology and conservation. And it was something I never really considered before. And I honestly didn't know it existed, but I reached out anyway and sent my CV and just hoped for the best. And it must have worked out because we've been working together for almost two years now. So that's really cool. So what did she find attractive about your application? I think just, I was very excited about what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And the first meeting with her, she was talking about the project that she put in the ad for, but then she just started going off on all these different projects that she had that were available. And there was just a data set from the DRC and I started looking at it and started noticing these trends. And that's what I've been working on for a while now. And I think Mm -hmm. being so excited about each part drew me to her and like how she's so passionate about her work and it's very inspiring. And being able to be around that kind of energy and kind of radiate with it, I think was something that also drew her to me or me to her as well. Oh, that's really nice because... I think from my experiences, most of them, when I've interviewed, it's, yeah, you're looking for somebody who's excited and passionate. And I don't like those words because they're just so abstract, just from like a job interview perspective. But I think that's an important factor. And what I've seen is though that most people, when they've hired for positions, they've always looked for like the qualifications. And I think the kind of experience that you've had where you were able to connect with Dr. Gore, I believe, yeah, is something that I think most people should also look for when they're looking to partner to work with someone. But it's rare, essentially, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. And I think being honest about your shortcomings when you're talking to someone, but also providing like where else you can, I guess, support that lacking, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Because I was open about not knowing French and not knowing Yeah, two qualifications I had neither (laughs) and I think I think reaching out anyway does more than just not reaching out at all because Mm -hmm. if I wouldn't have done that I wouldn't be where I am now essentially yeah wow there are just so many I don't know if the word is anomaly in Mm -hmm. your story but there was a research study that came out of Harvard that showed that women are less likely to apply for jobs that like if they don't meet 100% of the requirements, yeah. but you're just like, F it, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> yeah, this seems interesting. Like, yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing for me to lose. Exactly. But it makes sense because a lot of times, especially with women of color and especially within the field that we're in, there's a lot of opportunities where you're not going to meet all the qualifications. Right. But you're also not going to meet like the qualifications if you don't apply either. Right. It's the stubble-edged sword where people are looking for experience, but you need to have the experience in order to gain the experience yeah, in, exactly. in a sense. And I think that sometimes employers can be, I guess, sticklers about it based on my experience. So tell us a little bit about how you mentioned earlier that as a woman of color, you have a different experience in the conservation or environmental space. Is that something that you can share with us a little bit about? how that feel or like within academia and just from like a personal perspective, I guess. And I also recognize that what you don't know is what you don't know. 
But I think there's also a unique aspect to how women of color, and particularly in the environmental space, experience it. Yeah. And I think it's kind of present when you go into the field, like, you know, in the back of your head, there's not that many people that look like you or that are going to have the same experiences as you. But once you get into, like, say your undergraduate classes and you're the only person of color within the space and the only people of color that you will see ever within like these spaces are very rarely in textbooks or as seen as I know in one of my classes we were talking about how overpopulation is becoming an issue for conservation and climate change but they didn't show pictures of white people they only showed pictures of people of color and that was the only time yeah that was the only time we talked about people of color is in almost a criminalizing aspect of conservation. And it's hard to be learning from these instructors who traditionally aren't POCs and being a POC and just seeing how you're perceived essentially within that space. And that's almost as like an other person and not as someone who's being directly affected by these issues or are actually working to fix these issues within either respect. And It gets difficult at times, but I think with the expansion of like professional Twitter and professional Instagram pages, you're able to find more people within your community. And it's been really helpful for me to find other Black conservationists and Black social scientists that are also going through these same steps within their programs, but we're able to connect with each other and kind of verify what's going on, but also keep progressing and seeing there's other people who are doing it as well. Mm. Yeah. So the Twitter part is where you explained you've kind of found other people of color, professional or professionals of color on Twitter. It's something that I noticed as well very recently is there's been this, I guess, this burst of conversation amongst conservationists of color or anyone like from STEM. Mm -hmm. And I... I had no idea it was actually a thing. (laughs) Yeah. Which is really nice because throughout most of my professional development, I haven't really had, I've worked in predominantly white spaces and organizations. And so I haven't really had much of an opportunity to connect with other professionals of color. So tell us a little bit about what it looks like when you have an opportunity to interact with other professionals or scientists of color in your field of study, what do the conversations look like and how do you build that relationship? So these conversations I think are really important because when I have these conversations, I don't feel like I'm being kind of put on a pedestal as like a voice for diversity and I'm actually being acknowledged for the research that I'm doing because there have been instances where I'll be talking to like a white colleague or a white professional and I can just tell like they're automatically not thinking about what I'm saying and they're more looking at who I am or trying to guess where I'm coming from rather than listening to all the work that I'm doing. And I've experienced like multiple microaggressions from people like professors and other students and things. And being able to kind of connect with other conservationists of color about these instances makes me realize more that I'm not alone in what I'm experiencing. And what I'm experiencing is like, oh, this is happening to other people. This is actually a thing. And then it helps us have a conversation on how to change it and also how to kind of keep going within sometimes this very white Eurocentric field that it can tend to be. But I do think it's changing a lot and a lot more people are becoming cognizant of its colonialist roots. And I'm not exempt from that. Like even with my research, I transitioned from using the word bushmeat, which has colonial implications to using the term wild meat. And I'm trying to work on something regarding that because there is a lot of different papers that are kind of discussing it, but there's not like a deep analysis on the roots of that word besides there being like in general colonialist implications with bushmeat. Yeah. Sorry, I'm only smiling here because okay. you're so right. And I'm making the correction in my notes. So thank you for no, that. Okay. <laughs> no, thank you. I really do appreciate it. Because growing up in Kenya, we would refer to natural spaces as the bush. Yeah. Right. But that's a very colonial word that has stayed with us. 
That's why I was smiling because I was like, well, oh yeah. my gosh, of course it is. <laughs> Everything is colonial, right? Or rooted yeah. in colonialism. Well, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Once you find like all the things that connect to colonialism, your brain just kind of just explodes. <laughs> Each time. Each actually. time, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like that first time. It's, yeah, even when you're explaining the whole Bushmate thing. Because I've also seen, in when I was doing research for our conversation, I also saw um, references to wildlife trafficking. So I guess, what's the difference between wild meat trafficking and wildlife trafficking? So wildlife trafficking, from my opinion, it's kind of like an umbrella term for different products. And then mm-hmm. wild meat is a form of wildlife trafficking. Gotcha. Okay. So wildlife trafficking will encompass like wildlife for the pet trade or wildlife for their parts or wild meat and then wild Mm. meat trafficking is like the subsector right 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 okay yes yep thank you for clarifying that so now that we're i guess we're naturally transitioned (laughs) into wild meat trafficking you've told us how you went about getting involved in it you saw this awesome ad with dr gore and you applied to it and it's been two years of just an amazing journey and so Why is this topic important to you and then also to the macroeconomies? Yeah, so I am very involved in like activism and social justice, like from not supporting like fast fashion and even my diet choices. I'm vegan for a while and I also promote slow food and shopping local. And I'm realizing that a lot of these like sub-interests that I'm involved in for social justice advocacy are very much seen within the wild meat trafficking industry and kind of seeing how this specific subsect of wildlife trafficking is posing a risk to not only biodiversity conservation, but also food security and sustainability and public health. And it's already a very like not well-known field. Like we don't know everything that there is about it but we even know less about how gender is influencing it and how men and women are involved within it. And I think that being able to solve this knowledge gap can help us have a better and more comprehensive approach to solving the problem of this almost unsustainable trade. But it used to be more sustainable, presuming that it didn't become a problem until more recently. And that largely also has to do with the changing consumer demographic So bringing the wild meat into the urban environment, there's this element of choice that the consumers have. So a lot of the consumers have access to other protein sources, whereas with this industry within a rural environment, there's not that many options. So having this element of choice brings about a different demographic of consumers that can choose what they want to eat when they want to eat it. And they have a large, like say within a rural environment, you might have one market within 100 kilometers. But if you go into an urban market or an urban environment, you could have 20 markets on one block. Right. So it's the whole economics of the the demand for it increases once you go into urban environments. So for example, if dwarf meat or the dwarf crocodiles, right? If there's a demand for them just in a rural area, once you take it, I guess, into the urban meat markets, then it opens it up into like even I guess, a demand for gorilla meats or dukers. Yeah, yeah. And so in terms of like the macro perspective, I read somewhere that just like the illegal industry, the wildlife trafficking industry is estimated to be like 5 to 23 billion US dollars annually. And of -hmm. course, those numbers are different depending on like who you're reading, like whose report you're reading. So how do you think that your research on gender dynamics would impact that overall number? And even if they're not related, maybe that's not the case. I'm not sure if it's entirely related because I know a lot of the people who are engaging within this industry, it's not like the kind of orchestrated criminal offense that ivory trafficking is, where largely wild meat trafficking is going to be conducted locally and not so much internationally. And a lot of the people who are engaging in this industry are doing so out of necessity rather than out of greed. And I think the amount of like economic return that they're getting from this industry can be better in some instances than the local employment, but it's not something that's sustainable and something that they can depend on all the time, just especially with 
the urban market expanding, there's going to be less species that are able to be trafficked and less people are going to be wanting to buy like the more common species and we'll be searching for the more rare species. And that'll make either like a surplus of these types of products or there's going to be a lot of people with not a lot of money to kind of get rid of all the things that they need. So I'm not sure how much it's contributing to that giant number, but it's something that I want to figure out just partly because the industry is so different depending on, or like the functions and like the supply chain for the industry is so different depending on like geographic region or the type of meat that's being traded or the individuals that are involved. Right. So you're doing your research in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yes. Give us an overview of what the wild meat trafficking scene looks like there. So I actually am not entirely familiar with it because I haven't been to the DRC, but there is a team through the Wildlife Conservation Society that is working there. And they basically go into different urban markets and they'll just take surveys about what products are being handled and what's being traded and what the stalls are offering. And then they'll send those survey results back to Dr. Gore and I, and we'll be able to analyze and see where there's different trends in, say, how many women are trading in this type of product or what product is originating from this city and where's it ending up. So I think largely that it's shifting to more the urban environments in the DRC specifically. There's like a phrase within the DRC where wild meat is considered a delicacy and a lot of tourists are coming to the DRC to go and eat the wild meat in the restaurants, which is really, really interesting and also kind of further shows the change in this market demographic. Mm. And so what are some of the most common wild meats in the DRC market? So right now, from what I've seen, it's primarily antelopes and Dwikers, which I think is just they're available and that's what they're selling. But there's a number of different species, like there's dwarf crocodiles. Um, in some instances, they're primates. It's very interesting in seeing the number of species at different times. So the data that I have is from a three month span. But I'd be interested to see different three month spans like throughout the year and see how those products change as well. Mm-hmm, yeah, like on a seasonal basis, right? Yeah, for sure. Interesting. So since you said seasonal, I was thinking, do the hunters determine when is like a good time to hunt for the antelopes, for example? And do they have like codes of conduct where they won't kill like females or certain ages? And this that's is like a, a really good question. <laughs> I have no, I don't have no clue. That's, that's really interesting. I'm not sure if they would have those codes of conduct. I'm not familiar with the hunting practices because it's definitely different depending on what weapons are being used to hunt. So if they're using rifles or if they're using spears, they're able to be more selective about what they're poaching or hunting. But if they're using snares, snares are non-discriminatory. So they're just going to capture whatever is there. I would consider with the ease of having snares available or like being those tools to craft these snares, those would be more common. But you also have to consider any warfare that's going on and the number of animals that are being taken from that. But that's a really good question. That's really cool. Now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, because here in the U.S., hunters have rules. You yeah. have to, like, based on the season and the population of the local area that you're in. Every sort of trade or cultural practice has some sort of code of conduct. And so that's just what I was kind of curious to know about. But looking then at the gender roles, right? What are you seeing? Oh, this was one thing I wanted to say is it's interesting that you mentioned that most of the wild meat is used for consumption because what I'm familiar with is most of the wild meat that has been used is for medicinal purposes. And my familiarity with that is only with Western Africa and Southern Africa. And as far as like Eastern Africa goes, I'm not saying that this practice isn't there, but I think it's more clamped down because Kenya's like a part of its backbone is wildlife tourism. And so they've also been like at the forefront of just clamping down on the ivory trade and also producing or tackling rhino poaching. So 
Yeah. And maybe like because of colonialism, those practices have ended, I guess. And I think like colonialism is a lot more deep seated in Kenya, (laughs) as I'm realizing over the years. But anyways, that was just my little rant there, just in terms of like differences that I've noticed based on what you're telling me. So what are you seeing in these gender roles? What are women doing? What are men doing? And I'm assuming you're just looking at binary. I want to be respectful. Yeah, no, I'm definitely right now I'm looking at the binary, but just because the treatment of gender beyond the binary, especially within the region that I'm working in, isn't apparent as apparent as it is like say in the US or in Europe. So it's something I want to look more into. There's just not a lot of it being openly expressed in areas and very cognizant of gender expanding this binary notion that we have. But I think it's hard to decide right now just because when you're looking at certain products and you're looking at certain items that are being traded, there's a different makeup for the types of men and women that are involved and what roles they're having. So one of the interesting findings that we found was that women were also trading or like involved in in the ivory trade within our study sample and that they were handling ivory products. And a lot of the research is being done on ivory trafficking and ivory trade. There's very, very little about women being involved within South Africa. Like hunters who get registrations, they'll bring prostitutes with them to have another like hunting certificate. So with each hunting certificate, you can take like one elephant or one rhino. But if they have, if they bring prostitutes with them, they can take their hunting tickets and hunt more animals, even though it's like underneath their names. And there's not very much like going beyond that type of understanding. Yeah. Sorry, I'm smiling again. Just like so many interesting facts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I'm sure the South African government knows this. So are they just allowed? I would assume. I don't know. I really don't know because it's like really, really complicated. And (laughs) like as easy as it seems to be like, oh, they're probably not hunting them. You can also just give them the gun and have them shoot at the last minute and be like, oh, they hunted them, but I'm taking it back. Mm -hmm. They find like workarounds. Interesting. Yeah. So you work in DRC. Is there a specific part within DRC that you're working in? I'm working primarily in Brazzaville. Brazzaville. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing that women and men have like a 50-50 responsibility in the supply chain. Is that correct? I would be hesitant to confirm that, but I think that women are holding a much stronger role than we give them credit for within the okay. industry. And a lot of the activities are doing are beyond like kind of our rudimentary understanding of almost like 1950s-esque understanding of how women are involved in the workforce. Mm -hmm. Just because there are instances where women are involved in the legit trafficking of the meat, but they're also selling it and they're also trading it. And they're doing a lot more beyond what we would assume that they're doing, which is something that's not as like criminal, like quotations criminal, or something that's more dangerous, essentially. Because if you're moving like an illegal product, which wild meat is, it's a greater risk than if you're just selling it, in my right. opinion. Just right. because selling it, you can cover it, you can hide it, you can do something. But if you're right. trafficking it and you're caught, like there's not really much that you can put the blame on right. besides yourself. Right. You're saying that they're most likely a bigger part or the women are a bigger part of the trade based on what you've been able to find through your data so far. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and I think also the how we're perceiving women and how we're approaching any type of gender layer within wildlife crime is very, very baseline right now. And I think there needs to be more investigation to see when gender matters and when it doesn't. Because there are instances where gender isn't a confounding variable within like some type of industry. Right. And there's instances where it is dependent on it. Like study sample, if we removed women from the equation then we're missing like certain products and we're missing how different products that are coming from certain countries and we're missing that whole element. Whereas like if we were working in a different, say like a different species or in a different area of the world and mm-hmm. we remove women, maybe it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Are you looking at gender perspectives based on where they are within the supply chain? 
I have not yet. Okay. I would like to. With this research, it was more looking at do women have an influence on this market? And if we remove them, what would happen? Okay. Let's talk about that. Yeah. What are you finding? So what we're finding is that there's a very distinct connection between women and the types of products that they're handling, where they're sourcing the products, and where they're sending the products. Say we removed women from this industry. We would be removing our knowledge on the products that are coming from X country. And we'd also be removing our knowledge on that product and where that product's being sent to. Okay. Just because it's primarily dominated by women within that sector. Okay. Is it that women handle specific products? It's kind of skewed. So okay. there'll be certain products such as the dwarf crocodile, which are predominantly handled by women within our study sample. But then there'll be other products where men and women are both handling them, which could be like wild meat in general. Like men and women are both handling it. But once you get it down to a greater species level, you'll see where there's different trends and who's handling what and in what variation. Okay. So is there any way that you can share with us based on what you have so far, like the specific, I guess, trends that you've observed based on the specific products? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, the dwarf crocodiles, like Mm -hmm. everything besides the legit hunting of the animal is orchestrated by women, which is really interesting because a lot of scientists don't know that much about dwarf crocodile biology, but these women are heavily informed in like the species and what's going on in their trade and in their like quote unquote husbandry. But their husbandry right now is just kind of, it's not good because the dwarf crocodiles can go for months without eating. So they'll just be kind of stuffed in a shed until it's time to sell them off. It's really sad. Yeah, it's really sad. Why wouldn't they want to feed them though? Because you get more meat, right? I mean, if you're food insecure, like, and you don't have to feed something, Mm. then you just don't. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And we also saw that women are involved in ivory trafficking in some capacity. I'm looking more into the roles they had within the ivory-related instances because my primarily investigation was in wild meat products and like subspecies within that category. But those are two really main findings. I'm working on hopefully getting a manuscript on this work published within the next coming months. But it's really exciting as much as wild meat and like dead animals can be, but it's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, that is fantastic that you're able to work on a manuscript and get it possibly published when you're an undergrad, which is awesome. (laughs) And it's rare. So I'm so impressed and I'm so happy at the same time that you've had an opportunity to do something meaningful with this. You've been able to gain so many like skills and articulate it or just explain what's going on and then also get published, get your like name out there. You know, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's very exciting. (laughs) So what are your, your next steps with the research? And then we can talk about next steps after you graduate. Yeah. So the next steps of the research is just finishing analysis and then also finishing the manuscript. So I'm hoping to publish that before the end of the year. COVID kind of threw a wrench into my plans to publish it this summer, but you got to do what you got to do during a pandemic, you know? Yeah. But I'm very excited for the next steps with that. And I'll hopefully be starting another project as soon as that one ends. I'm working on finalizing that, but I'm very excited to keep working in this sector. I guess next steps professionally, I'm applying to PhD programs this fall and am currently studying for the GRE, which is not fun. No, it's not. Gotta do it. (laughs) I hope they just abolish that. I thought they were going to, but there's still a couple schools that require it and it's just necessary evil. Yeah. So one thing I realized that I said is when I said that you're able to articulate it, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to sound like, oh, just because you're a person of color, you speak oh, English, no, good okay. kind of thing. I didn't mean that. No, I, I just meant like, I am not very good at articulating these type of things. That's so okay. it's really amazing that you can. So yeah, I wasn't trying to microaggress you in any no, way. <laughs> no, no, I didn't get that impression at all. <laughs> okay. So... When you're deciding on PhD programs, and I think this would be helpful for other people who are sort of in a similar situation as you are in, is 
how do you go about choosing a PhD program? Like what are the factors that you take into consideration? So the factors that I've taken into consideration is looking at the advisors and also looking at what the program can offer me. So every program that I'm applying to right now is different in terms of what title I'll have at the end. But the advisor that I would hopefully be able to work with is allowing me to work on the project that I want to work on. And there's also resources at the institution that will help me get to where I want to be. And something that's also important to me is spreading like conservation advocacy and intersectionality. So being able to communicate the work that I'm doing to a broader audience is really important. So seeing what programs that the institution has in place that can help me do that. So one of the schools I'm applying to, they have a prison teaching initiative where I'm able to go and fulfill my teaching requirements at the local prisons, which is really important to me in bringing conservation to people who might not ever have exposure to it. And it's just something I want to consider more so than the name of the program or it's just finding what's important to you and then making sure that where you're applying to is able to fulfill those needs. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think most of the people who have come across who decided to pursue a PhD was, it was number one, who's the advisor, but the whole intersectionality aspect of it is something that I've not heard. So that's, it's really cool that you're considering that because with PhDs, it tends to be like an ivory tower, no pun intended, Yeah, yeah. where it's you just amassing all of this knowledge and expertise just mostly to elevate your status within like society right and there's less of giving it back in a sense for the most part what i've observed so you wanting to make like a practical application of that is i really admire that so also the aspect of funding how do you like some of my friends who did phds they had to pay for the way through it which i'm like ah don't do it <laughs> What? Oh my God. Yeah. Like oh, five to six me. years of research and you're just that paying for me. that. Yeah. So is that something that the funding comes in automatically or how does it work? Do you have to look for it? So for my programs, I've had open conversations with the advisors and I come from a working class family and I've worked all throughout undergrad and am currently working. Well, not mm-hmm. during this podcast, but like yeah. <laughs> you know, during a pandemic, I'm still working. Yeah. Granted, it's online and I'm very fortunate that I'm able to work online. Yeah. But it's something that's like no compromise situation. And what my advisor had told me, or like Dr. Gore has told me, is that you shouldn't pay for a PhD. And that's what I've been working towards. And if there's a program that says I have to pay, I just don't apply there. I'm also applying for numerous grants and and trying to figure that out and being able to find either a faculty member or someone that you're close to who's had experience applying for grant. It's really, really helpful to kind of guide you through that process. And it can even be like a graduate student who's applied. I've talked to a lot of graduate students on Twitter who have helped me with the NSF GRFP, which is a graduate research fellowship program. So I've been working on that application and also asking potential advisors if they have advice on what grants to apply to because it never hurts to get extra money if you can. I don't think anyone says no to extra money. (laughs) Mm -mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's really good advice. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So in the final piece here of our conversation, you've had a phenomenal undergraduate experience. Thank you. I was like, oh my gosh, people can do this in undergrad? What was I doing with my undergraduate degree? (laughs) I feel kind of useless. So what advice would you give to other undergrad students who are trying to figure out their career in the environmental path and how to maximize on it the way you have? I think try a bunch of different things. So the first lab I worked in at my first institution, I was studying coyote feeding behavior and was dissecting coyotes in this stinky little lab in the middle of Vermont. And we were getting coyotes from people who had hit them with their cars or who had shot them. And it was just... It was really wild. And then I went from there to studying axolotl courtship behavior. And then I ended up where I am now, which is studying wildlife crime. And I don't think I'd end up in the same place if I hadn't have done my previous experiences because it helped me realize what I wanted and it helped me get the skills I needed to 
be where I am now. So being able to try different things and also realize when you're not enjoying those things anymore is really important. And I want to emphasize like on that enjoyment part, just because if you're not enjoying what you're doing, then there's really no point in doing it unless it's like a requirement for your major and you have to take physics or something. But <laughs> I don't hate physics, but I, I didn't need I just I never did well at physics. Board. That's why I don't like it. <laughs> what do I need this for? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So just realizing when to quit when things aren't like benefiting you, whether that be academically or emotionally or physically, I mm-hmm. think it's really necessary to find the niche and what you want to do. Right. Yeah. That's a really good one is knowing when to quit because quitting isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I hate the quote that says like winners don't quit because I think winners do quit (laughs) Quit. and they quit often just because they know not to waste their time in something that's not benefiting them to their full capacity. Yes, 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 totally. For me, I came from this cultural aspect of if you start something, you finish it kind of thing. (laughs) Or if you don't, then you're a failure. (laughs) But that's a really toxic kind of teaching yeah, it just goes back to what you said is like winners have quit several times and they've quit while they're ahead of the game, right? Yeah. All right. So we're reaching into a lightning round here. And okay. <laughs> this is uh, for fast lightning type of questions. So whatever comes to your mind, just blurt it out. <laughs> okay. I was going to say splurt it out. <laughs> That's not the proper word. No, it's Okay. <laughs> So what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? So I read We Were Eight Years in Power by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm-hmm. And I'm an avid reader. And this book has stuck with me for the past week. And I haven't been able to read anything else just because nothing's meeting the expectations that I have reading that book. Uh, and it just gave me a better idea of like the black experience and like myself as a black woman and also just how how our society is functioning and i think it's just so beautifully written and so like i've highlighted that book like crazy because it's just mind-blowing me yeah so what is like a quick synopsis on the book so the book is a series of essays that were written during each year of obama's presidency by ta-nehisi coates And each letter corresponds with what he was perceiving or feeling or something that was involved within the Black community during those times. And it also gives insight on how Obama's presidency was kind of revolutionary for Black people in general. Mm -hmm. And it's just a very interesting take on the Black experience and what it truly meant to have a Black president. And it's just so beautifully written. Like, I I have nothing but good things. I'm definitely going to put it on my reading list. There's another book from Coates that I can't remember that's on my reading list. Between the World and Me? This is that one? Or The Water Dancer? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Okay. (laughs) I just know the cover of the book. (laughs) No, it's okay. The Water Dancer is also really good. Okay. It's a fiction book surrounding slavery, and it's a really, really cool take on like the traditional like slavery narrative. Okay, we'll definitely add that in the show notes as well as my reading <laughs> list. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I'm a planner, so I always have a physical planner with me and it helps me keep track of everything. And if I didn't have it, I would be very much lost. But I also couple it with numerous spreadsheets on things that I need and it really helps me keep everything organized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you received? Winners never quit. That was the be- <laughs> that's honestly the best advice I've ever received. Or winners never not quit, more so. Yeah. It's the best advice that I've ever received. That is a good one. Yeah, it helps me not put so much pressure on myself. Indeed, indeed. And it gives you an opportunity to just give you space, I guess, to explore, right? What is your superpower? I can't fly, but <laughs> I'm surprisingly really good with horses. So uh-huh. I guess that's a cool superpower. I never grew up with horses, but my aunt's a farrier. And anytime I go out with her, she'll have like horses that will never come to her or will like be very aggressive towards her, just come over and like nuzzle me and stuff. So I guess in the superpower, if I'm ever needing a horse, 
but <laughs> that is because they're highly intelligent beings and they have a good I guess sense of character yeah they're, they're really like, complex animals yeah. based on what I saw from the horse whisperer yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's my expertise on horses <laughs> the movie <laughs> awesome well as we come to or this is the end of our conversation here how can we follow you on your journey you can follow me on twitter i'll send you my twitter but it's at elena 23 and then also on instagram my handle is elena.green and they both transitioned to be more professional so if you want to follow me on there feel free thank you and is there anything else you would like to add just kind of keep going i think people need to keep persevering i know like within the environmental field and conservation, it gets really tough, especially with the times that we're in now. Mm-hmm. But it's really important to kind of go back and look at what got you into this field in the first place. I know I went back and watched like Wild Kingdom episodes that resonated with me when I was a kid or read my books that got me started. Mm-hmm. And just being sure to remind yourself that you're meant to be here and why you're here especially given these times. Yeah, that's a good one. Going back to your source of inspiration to remind you of why you started on this path. That's a good one. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you again for your time. This has been a lovely conversation. I've learned so much about wild meat, not bush meat. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you all the best in your journey. And if there's any way that I can support you at all, please do let me know. And otherwise, we'll stay connected on social media. For sure. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, all. Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.